Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Brandon R. Schrand. His last name is spelled S-E-H-R-A-N-D. I finally kind of tracked him down. We've kind of been bouncing around, but I really wanted to interview him about this book that I came across. The title of the book that he published in March 2021 is Psyche Man, A Mail Order Prophet, His Followers, and the Power of Belief in Hard Times. And a terrific book, really a great read, very artfully put together, very well researched, which he can talk about. This is not his first book. He's also written Works Cited, an Alphabetical Odyssey of Mayhem and Misbehavior in 2013, and also The Enders Hotel, a memoir, and that was published in 2008, and that won the River Teeth Literary Nonfiction Prize. But his work has appeared in a lot of uh, papers and magazines, including Sports Illustrated, the Dallas Morning News, the Utney Reader, Tin House, Shenandoah, the Georgia Review, North American Review, Boulevard, the Missouri Review, Columbia River Teeth, Echo Tone, and numerous other publications. He's done a lot of essays and a lot of, he's an essayist. Um, so he's been in anthologies, including Born on Air, Essays by Idaho Writers, Now Write, Nonfiction Writing Exercises from Today's Best Writers and Teachers, and The Book of Dads. Essays on the Joys, Perils, and Humiliations of Fatherhood. He has won the Willard, Willard R. Espy Award, Shenandoah's Carter Prize, the Pushcart Prize, four Pushcart Prize special mentions, and has had seven notable essays in the Best American Essay Series. His nonfiction has also been longlisted for Notting Hill's Hazlitt Prize, and he has earned a Yaddo residency. And he lives in Moscow, Idaho, where a lot of this takes place. So, And his website is his full name, brandonschrand.com. So, Brandon Tran, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, for people who may not have heard your background, you have a long background, a lot of writing. Can you talk kind of about your other writing and what led you to write this book, Psyche and a Man? Yeah, sure. So, I started out writing personal essays, which led me to write a memoir where, uh, about my upbringing, growing up in a boomtown hotel in southern Idaho. We owned a hotel, restaurant, and a bar, and it's kind of a working class um uh, establishment and I come from a working class family and um, only child and I spent my formative years watching these people kind of move in and out of our lives and so I started out with my first book as a memoir the second book kind of picks up where the first one left off but it's organized as a kind of bibliography right so all the books that were important in my life sort of frame the narrative and I thought that would be an interesting way to put to uh, put a book together um, so that was Work Cited, which came out in 2013, as you had mentioned. And then um, I was just kind of um, wanting to try my hand at narrative nonfiction. And I was casting around for a subject, and I kind of stumbled across Psycheana, this mail-order religion that started in Moscow, Idaho, uh, in my own backyard. I had never heard of it. Um, and I was just coming through a local history book, and I saw this brief chapter in there about this man, Frank Robinson, who started this mail order religion, kind of a new thought, uh, iteration of new thought back in the Great Depression. And it turns out he made kind of a fortune uh, off of folks who were looking for hope wherever they could find it. And the fact that he made a lot of money um, sort of turned a lot of people off. Uh, they kind of cast him in the light as a charlatan. Um, and that's certainly how I saw him going into the book. And my, my mind changed a little bit about him. I don't think he was just a monolithic 
bad guy. I, th I think he was a lot more complex than that. And so that's how I got to the subject. But the the research took, I don't know, some seven years. It was it was a slog to go through all the letters from the um, from the students, of which there are thousands of pages still at the University of Idaho archives. So it was a lot of fun. It was a labor of love. And it was uh, nice not to write about myself for a while. Interesting. And so for people who hadn't heard his name, I had honestly never heard of this character, Frank Bruce Roberts Robinson. Can you talk about his start and how he ended up in Moscow all the way to Moscow Auto? So his origin story um, is, is, um, is, com is complex and interesting and, um, is really kind of tied to the conception of his movement and sort of haunted him. And what I mean by that is that Frank Bruce Robinson was born in England, 1886, uh, in a village just eight miles uh, from where Shakespeare was born in Henley and Arden. Um, he was the son of a pastor, a kind of a firebrand pastor. Uh, he was one of uh, five boys um, his mother died early, and Frank had a very contentious relationship with his father. And um, for reasons that remain to me inexplicable, uh, Frank's father sent uh, Frank and his one brother, Sidney, put him into the, um, the uh, home children program. And if you're not familiar with that, this was a uh, a program, 19th century, maybe even into the 20th, well, yeah, into the 20th century, where the children of, you know, uh, prostitutes, criminals, uh, drug addicts, alcoholics, um, were kind of rounded up and sent to either Canada to kind of live in these homes and work, um, or they were sent to Australia, South Africa, and right there, uh, they did not come from uh, a home of prostitutes, ne'er-do-wells, criminals, or, or the like. They came from a, a fairly well-to-do, educated home, uh, man of the ministry. So why his father sent him off is, is a, a mystery to me. Um, he ended up in Canada as a young boy, about 16, 17 years old. And really there began a life of self-invention. Um, he was kind of chameleonic. He would uh, kind of invent his story as he went. Um, and he bounced around Canada working as a druggist, losing one job, getting another job. He was early on alcoholic. Um, he joined uh, various branches of the Canadian military, the Northwest Mounted Police, and then in about 1910, uh, crossed in the United States and joined the U.S. Navy, claiming that he'd been born in New York City. And that becomes an important point in the book. The, he sort of lied about where he came from, uh, and it caused some trouble when he was accused of passport fraud later on. Um, but, you know, he came to the United States, started out in Portland, Oregon, moved around into Washington State, down into San Francisco. Um, he did a short bit uh, in the U.S. Army under the name Earl Meyer in the Philippines, and then was, for, again, reasons that are not exactly clear, he was court-martialed and sent to Alcatraz for six months 
got out and tromped the streets of San Francisco. And it was there that he sobered up, bounced around in Oregon, decided to settle down in Klamath Falls, met a judge's daughter, um, Florence Levitt, fell in love, got married against uh, his soon-to-be father-in-law's wishes. Um, he was 14 years older than his, than his wife, uh, murky backgrounds, um, you know, specious credentials, uh, just kind of a fabulist. But it was in those early years that he stumbled across the idea of starting his own religion. And he wanted to find a druggist job where he could be done at six o'clock at night and work on his religion after that. There happened to be an opening in a drugstore in Moscow, Idaho. So they moved from Oregon to Moscow and then remained there uh, until his death in uh, 1948. Right. So he made it all the way to Moscow and he he was a kind of like, uh, re, like you said, chameleonic or reinventing himself. He was a druggist, moved from job, stockbroker, kind of bouncing right. around a lot, uh, kind of shiftless. So how did how did he... His timing of creating this thing, Psycheana, was really on point, right? I mean, it, it, the timing was right for this kind of new age. Uh, Absolutely. And I don't think that it would have been as successful um, had it been started really in any other time. So he got to Moscow. He wrote these lessons on a borrowed typewriter. He wrote 20 lessons. His idea was to sell these lessons at a dollar per per lesson. Uh uh, and a dollar back in 1929, 25 bucks there about today. Um, and that was, you know, a, a fairly good bit of money at the time. Now, he started this. He put his first ad in Psychology Magazine that said, I talked with God, you can too. Um, and it was a really simple ad. He um, anticipated a few responses he got flooded with responses got inundated with folks that sent in a dollar wanted the lesson and then he would send out other lessons he started in a little um basically like a a, a tiny workroom above the drugstore and his wife helped him and then he expanded out with some borrowed money from some local businessman local businessmen in moscow um, and it was moving right along, but it was really kind of an unforeseen venture capitalist, if you will, from uh, Egypt, a British cotton uh, broker named Jeffrey Peel Burley um, that had enrolled in Psycheana, wrote to Robinson, said, I love this. Robinson on a lark said, well, if you love it, that's great. Send me $40,000. And Burley did. Um, had it not been for that massive cash infusion at the time, I don't think it would really have taken off. But it really was um, this idea of, you know, Frank's notion, Robinson's notion of conventional faith is he didn't have a lot of patience with it. Stemming, I think, a lot from his father who was a preacher and he's kind of thumbing his nose at his father, but he, he wanted to start something that was radically different than conventional religion. He, he sort of, uh, you know, raised the ire of the clergy by saying, you know, the story of Jesus is not unique. There's a lot of saviors in ancient texts that have this kind of resurrection story and, and that kind of thing. And so he sort of thumbed his nose at conventional religion as well. And, you know, at a time when folks 
they couldn't trust the banks. Uh, banks were failing. They didn't trust the government. They felt like the government had failed them. They couldn't trust, you know, really authority, everything around them that was conventional and had stood by them traditionally was faltering. And so it wasn't unsurprising that a lot of people really turned to an alternative belief system to find some semblance of hope in an otherwise dark time. Um, and that became more so throughout the Great Depression. Right. So the Great Depression, like, I mean, if you put a date on it, it was like 29 and then six weeks later, I think in your book, or very soon after his first mailing. And he was so he had somehow learned all those lessons from salesmanship and in, in getting these advertisements out. Can you talk about you mentioned the New Thought Movement? Can you kind of expand on like who his influences were when he kind of put together Psychiana and how he came up with the title? Yeah. So um, his. His psychiatry is by and large derivative of a number of various uh, religions. He was influenced a bit by Christian science. He was influenced by, um, I would say, more than anyone, Robert Collier, who wrote The Secret of the Ages, uh, a set of like, I don't know, 20 slim volumes published in the early 20s. And um, he really kind of saw, I think, my supposition is he saw Robert Collier not only as selling the idea of affirmations, positive thinking, before we really had that term, positive thinking, and, and he saw Collier was making a good deal of money on it. Uh, Robinson was an opportunist. You know, he'd done everything from, you know, stockbroker writing ads in Hollywood um, to door-to-door sales in Portland, Oregon. So he, um, he saw this idea of like marketing and a, a capitalistic sy- uh, system and religion as really hand in glove. And he, of course, he wasn't the only one, but he really um, drew a lot of influence from Robert Collier Ernest Holmes later on, um, but early on, I would say most of it stemmed from um, Robert Collier. Right. And I think you mentioned Hanel's master key system. So you kind of see that kind of system. Right. He's putting it together. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So Charles Hanel was another one where, in fact, in the book, um, uh, you know, Frank used a lot of the same lingo that these guys were using at the time. Um, a lot of the same verbiage, uh, you know, they kind of had their own organizational, you know, jargon. And Frank was really kind of borrowing pretty, pretty heavily from a lot of that. Um, you know, again, um, if you look at the notion of self-help in America, you can really trace it back to the Great Depression. It's really kind of the genesis of the self-help movement in America. It's when AA started, right? And so there was there was this kind of hunger and um, a kind of new uh, a new way to, you know, self-assess and a lot of really savvy, you know, businessmen by and large saw saw that opportunity. Bruce Barton was another one. Um, and Frank Robinson wasn't the first, um, but he was one of a number of people that saw this uh, as a as an apt and opportune time to kind of, um, you know, sell their ideas. 
And how did he come up with the name Psychiana? Wasn't there some kind of spiritual event he had or claimed he had? So that's an interesting story. Uh, all we have is Frank's word for it. But according to him, um, he had had a dream that um, he walked into a room that was all painted black. And there was a man lying on a cot with his arms crossed over his chest. And there was someone standing over him and saying, um, you know, we are in a spiritually dead world. And, um, and I'm, I'm just kind of going off memory here. Uh, this is Psycheana. You know what it is. Frank later claimed that the man in the dream telling him that they were living in a spiritually dead world and that he was looking at this corpse, this spirit, this man representing the spiritually dead world. And he started the, the name Psycheana came out of that dream. And the man talking to him in, in his dream was Jeffrey Peel Burley, the cotton merchant who gave him their $40,000. It's kind of a weird, weird story, but that was Frank's, um, that was Frank's explanation for how he got, how he got the name. And I believe he's came out of the dream and shook his wife awake and said, I know the name it's Psycheana. And uh, it was, and you know, he knew either in a preternatural way or from his training, he knew all about branding. And Psyche Anna became the brand, and he really ran with that, took it seriously as well. And he had that idea of science. So this new psychology, or I think you write in your book, like he believed that evolution was science, and that was the science. This kind of new scientific religion overcomes the pretensions of Christianity. There's a lot of attacking of uh, Christianity, it seemed to be to me in that in in your book, like at least in Psychiana. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Uh, well, he was he was very, very vocal about attacking Psychiana, calling it, you know, a dogma from the dark ages and a history steeped in blood. And he was very provocative about about the way he cast conventional um, uh, Christianity. Um, and, you know, a lot of it had to do with being provocative for provocative sake. But I think he also really that much I, I think he really believed in. You know, he'd done a brief stint in the Toronto and Toronto Bible College, dropped out. He just didn't have any faith in the story of Jesus, the Immaculate Conception, the resurrection or any of that. And started really reading a lot of he was a voracious reader and he read a lot about uh world religions and i think that's how he came to a lot of his his early conceptions of of why he thought christianity was just you know kind of bunk in his in his in his um in his view right he said it was associated with violence so he took that and i think in some of his you have it in your appendix these 20 or psychiana lessons and one of yeah. them is these whole things from past history, the other people who had been crucified and things like that. So he really yeah. was was not in that. And it's interesting in your book, you mention a couple other people who you kind of see Robinson in their lens, which was Joseph Smith and L. Ron Hubbard. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading about the structure of Psycheana <clears throat> is a, what I call a, a pay to pray religion. Um, you know, 
you pay a dollar for a lesson, lesson one, it's lesson one through 20 is the first series. And there's the advanced lessons. And then there's the new lessons, the new advanced lessons, and it's just on and on and on. And you have to keep paying to go and to get, you know, more enlightened. And I was thinking, you know, what's, what's a contemporary analog and Scientology popped into my mind. And, um, you know, L. Ron Hubbard wrote Dianetics, that published in 1952, which was the same year that Psychiana closed. And um, when Robinson was advertising Psychiana early on, there's a whole, he, had, he kept a whole book of all the magazines that he published in, and they were all pulp magazines, uh, science fiction, um, detective magazines, um, Western magazines, and they were literally the same magazines that L. Ron Hubbard was publishing short fiction in back in the day. Now I looked for like any sort of direct line that like L. Ron Hubbard saw Psychiana ads and then patterned Scientology after that. I never found such a smoking gun. But the similarities are pretty clear in, in at least the structure of, you know, graduate higher up through the order of Psychiana. Um, self-actualization, um, a kind of dismissive attitude toward, um, psych, you know, modern day psychology, although Frank's a little more ambiguous in his stance on that than say Hubbard was. Um, but yeah, I mean, they were both kind of, their personal lives were very, uh, similar in that, you know, they were both in the Navy. They both had questionable military questionable military history. They both had a fabulous point of, you know, kind of sense of themselves. They just sort of invented, you know, their past out of thin air. They, they didn't have any problem about exaggerating um, and fictionalizing their own backstory, uh, you know, and a lot of people said, obviously these people, you know, this guy's a con man, um, or people said, oh, they're, you know, this guy's a genius. And so they both kind of walked that, that, that same line. And, you know, Joseph Smith starting out, um, his backstory is just as kind of murky as, as Robinson's, right. And it's, um, uh, having kind of grown up in the LDS culture, not as a member of the faith, but just in the culture, you know, the closer you try to get to um, Joseph Smith's story, the farther you feel like you are away from it. And I felt like that with Frank Robinson. Um, and when Fawn Brody wrote the, I think the seminal biography on Joseph Smith, No Man Knows My History, that was really kind of the leading thesis in her book was she wanted to really get to who he was and it cost her 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 place in that religion. So I found some, some interesting parallels there as well. Right. And I think all three of them tied their teaching with money. Cause I think the Mormon church is very, yeah. they're not very ascetic in the sense of like eschewing financial. It's the other thing. It's a proof of like your status is your ability to make money. So these guys were not the kind of suffering servant types, uh, at least if, if you put them all together. The other thing that I think is curious is that, I didn't know that about Robinson. I was surprised at how what his global reach was, and it's kind of similar with all these other with Mormonism and uh, Scientology. Is that they really kind of had a, and a very strong kind of sales component to them? Um, oh, 
Yeah, absolutely. And he didn't stay in Moscow. One of the interesting things is he went to the Masonic Hall and gave a speech. Um, I think it was in Spokane or somewhere in Washington. Can you talk about this? Like he and he also went to L.A. I thought it was interesting. Can you talk about some of his travels and how he uh, presented himself? Yeah. So um, Frank took his show on the road. I mean, from a business strategy standpoint, one of the great things about Psychiana was that as a mail order religion, it really didn't require a whole lot of bricks and mortar. Um, he didn't have to have churches in every town and that kind of thing. Um, but it did require him to kind of get out on the road and, um, you know, uh, go to, he went to Los Angeles a number of times. It's one of the cities that he drew the biggest crowds was LA and in Hollywood. Um, and in Portland, Oregon, he had a convention and he spoke in Spokane and, um, uh, he really liked um, he liked being on stage. I mean, the guy was a showman through and through. He was charismatic, you know, like Joseph Smith was, like L. Ron Hubbard apparently was. He was charming. He was smart, um, and he could work a crowd. And when he was feeling kind of down or um, – uh, or, uh, frankly, when, when his money was running dry, that's when he would hit the road and go do these circuits. And, you know, they would have basically a collection plate. And, you know, as, as much money as he made, he was always very quick to say, this is not about the money. You know, I don't care about the money. I don't care about, you know, a, a nickel or a dime of any of this. I'm doing this for all of you. And I don't make any money off of this. And he does protest too much on that on that point, I think, um, as he's driving around in his 1932 Duesenberg, you know. Right, which you can uh, see right here on the cover of your book, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that car was just so completely over the top. Um, you know, only A-list celebs, you know, Rudy Valentino were driving these cars. And, and of course, Robinson really liked to, well, he was a showman. And, and, and in, you know, in that era, what, you know, your house and your car were your biggest status symbols. Of course, it's not too different today, but it was very much so then. Um, you know, when, when Hoover said that, you know, when uh, President Hoover, before the Depression really hit, uh, said, you know, a, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage, that was the American dream. Well, Robinson's car in the garage was a Duesenberg. So, and he used that as proof that Psychiana was, you know, worked for him and it can work for everybody else. If I can drive this car, you can too. It was always tied back to the money. And one of the interesting aspects of your fascinating aspects of your book is how many people, the notes and the correspondence you included of people with Robinson and he had had people who were convinced that what he had made was working. You mentioned the name of the early guy, Joffrey Peel Burley in England, but there were other people, lots of other people who interacted with him in Psychiana, right? Yeah. So one of the things I was really just totally impressed by and made me kind of scratch my head and go, okay, uh, you know, well, let me put it this way. When I first dug into this, I'm like, what kind of people would believe this? This is just kind of, you know, nonsense. Um, but then you start reading the letters from the students and you know, they're from all walks of life. Um, you have the very articulate and um, literary 
to the very almost barely literate uh, who are members of this faith, all of them crediting successes, small and large, in their lives to Frank Robinson and Psychiana. And they were all, as you had mentioned, they were all over the world. I mean, there was students in the Philippines and in, in The Hague and, you know, students in England and, um, you know, all corners. And, you know, it, the, the reach was wide. And, uh, you know, he, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the bigger that it got, um, he had to, you know, he had to bring on more staff and, and Psychiana kind of grew exponentially in downtown Moscow. So there were a lot of buildings and he had a, he had the largest local uh, base of employees outside of the university. He was the largest employer. So it forced the small town of Moscow, Idaho, uh, you know, it split the town. People there like, well, on the one hand, he's providing all these jobs uh, to get these mailings out all over the world. On the other hand, Moscow was fairly embarrassed to be known as the place uh, where Psychiana started. So, um, yeah, he he had quite a reach, um, and uh, you know he, he was he was a bit of a, a divisive figure even back at home. Right. So he had he had conflicts with some of the people in the town. I think you wrote like half the town is for them, half is against. But he employed. You show the pictures in your book. He's employing tons of women. You got to remember at that time. It's not a year of computers. You had to have women typing out all of the response letters yeah. and the correspondence and all that. So maybe that's one thing you can talk is about the research you did, because there is a lot of research there in Idaho on this person, right? On Robinson. Yeah. So there, um, when Frank Robinson's eldest son, Alfred, um, he had all of the papers and he gave uh, one trove to the local historical society and another trove to the University of Idaho. And most of those materials were under, uh, under seal until I think 1980 or 82, somewhere in there. They unsealed those. That included a lot of the letters from the students from around the world. Um, there are still five boxes under seal that won't be open until 2024. So I'm very interested to see what might be in there. I have a, I have a suspicion, but I'm not sure, of course. Um, so the research part was reading. He wrote about 25 books. And he self-published these by and large. Um, and all of his books are pretty much autobiographical so it's really difficult to say this is where the man ends and the religion begins his biography is inextricably linked to his his religion because he is he was the exemplum of psychiana i am successful because of psychiana so i have to tell you my story was kind of his his whole mo so part of the research process was reading through those books reading through the lessons reading through the advertisements of which there were, you know, thousands. Um, then reading about self-help in America, reading about other kind of similar religions that were, you know, going on at the same time, other religious, you know, leaders, uh, learning about new thought, um, just trying to get my head around that, plus the dynamics of the Great Depression itself, and then situating the students within that context so that readers 
wouldn't be as quick to dismiss them as, oh, I can't believe you you, you bought into the Psycheana stuff. When, you know, if you put yourself in, in their shoes, which is kind of what I wanted to do in the book by researching these students and trying to find as much about each of the individual students as I could to make them real so they weren't so easy to dismiss as like, oh, you're, you know, you're a crackpot, you're, you know, um, I, you know, I really kind of felt for some of these, these students. So I would dive in and try to contact family members and, yeah, I'm writing about your great grandmother. Did you know she was a member of this religion? Do you have any photographs? Do you have any stories? And I would have to go through all the letters to find students whose stories I felt were kind of, you know, traceable and storyable that I could put in here as vignettes, um, kind of along a chronological timeline, you know, and you've got students that, you know, I thought that I would find students, that would be like, you know what, Frank, this thing's crap. Uh, I, I want out, I want my money back. Cause he said, you know, your money, your money back guarantee religion. Right. Nobody asked that I found for their money back. Of course, to do so would have meant that they had been duped in the first place. And in fact, the opposite sort of happened. You had people that groused a little bit. Like, I have no idea if you even read my letters, Dr. Robinson, but let me tell you what the what good Psychian has done for me. You know, you'd have people a little bit um, miffed that they felt like they were kind of being, it was form rejection or form letters type of thing and not really a person behind it. And yet they still hung on. And I really was compelled by that. So tracking down the individual stories of the students was a really kind of hard slog to get through. Of course, when I reached out to some family members and told them what I was doing, you know, they never returned my emails after saying their relative was, you know, part of Psychiana. Some were very forthcoming. A lot of it I just found uh, on Ancestry and was able to kind of put the put together the pieces. But I really wanted to kind of create a sort of almanac uh, for lack of a better word of that era and that time of what was going on and people's fears and worries and concerns and you know they felt like they didn't have anywhere else to turn and you know they saw psychiana and so why not um even some preachers were members of psychiana so all of them, yeah and you mentioned like a uh, presbyterian minister in moscow who was curious about it as a movement but wasn't super critical one of the interesting things I think the movement or Psychiana overlapped with was an interest in occultism too. So I, yeah. you have a little bit of segment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I didn't know a whole lot about the occult um, prior to really digging into the Psychiana story. Um, there was a book that I had looked into. I want to think it was called, Cult America or something, but there was a, a slim chapter in there on Frank Robinson, and it got me thinking about psyche and the larger context of the occult or the attraction to to to, to the occult. And you know, because I was sort of rather ignorant of the occult and its place in American and world history, particularly in the 1930s, I was sort of surprised pleasantly surprised from a researcher point of view that, you know, the occult wasn't really like a, a dodgy undertaking of some, you know, you know, back alley ne'er-do-wells. Like the occult was, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was all about it. I mean, intellectuals, uh, artists, 
you know, movie stars, um, writers, they were all very much interested in mediumships and the occult and seances and, and that kind of thing. Um, just as a matter of practice. And it was, it was, it was not fringe. I don't think really, it was almost a little more mainstream than I think I really thought it was, uh, at least amongst some of the intelligentsia of the time and psyche and a kind of rubbed up against that a little bit. Um, Frank was part of the American Psychical, I think it's the American Psychical Association. Research, ASPR. Yeah, the American Psych Society for Psychical Research. Research. That's right. So ASPR, he was a member of that that group, which I believe is still going. There's an, uh, I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, he, he was that he was part of that. He rubbed up against it a little bit. I don't know how active he was in it. He got the, the newsletter uh, from them. Some of his students asked about mediumships, that kind of thing. Um, he certainly was very, you know, interested in it. He didn't discount it outright. Um, and so, you know, Psychiana does fit in that kind of, that interesting segment in time where the occult was kind of chic and kind of popular. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you wrote directly at the occult at that time was good business. And I think it always, it goes in kind of cyclical phases into the 19th century, then back up and down the kind of sixties. I think maybe totally. it goes around yeah. now. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, it was interesting too, because you mentioned somebody who I knew was Cecil. And we talked about this in the pre-show Cecil Frederick Russell. Can you talk a little bit about why you put him in this book? Man? Well, that was just a fun, happy discovery. I, I was going through, again, part of the research, I was going through the ads and the, and the publications, the many publications that Psychiana put out. And one of them was Psychiana Quarterly. And um, Frank started selling ad space to bring in revenue for these. And one of the ads that he sold was to uh, uh, Cecil Frederick Russell, um, at, who put an ad for the, I think it was called the Cornizon Club. Cornizon. Cornizon was the demon that Crowley interacted with in Algeria. So. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, Suppose. what is this? Yeah. yeah. I was like, what is this? And so down the rabbit hole I go, and I had had a passing interest in Crowley myself ever since I was kind of a, a teenager, um, you know, and I, you know, I just thought that was a fascinating little connection there. And again, it pointed back to really Psychiana was part of this or fit into this larger context of the occult. Um, and I had no idea that Russell was uh, apparently an early student of Crowley's, um, from what I understand, an early pupil. Um, yeah, who went to the Abbey of Philema in Cefalu, Sicily. So he was very well known. And his name is very present and they had a lot of conflicts. And I think you're right. He kicked, Crowley kicked him out of the magical fraternity. He kind of went his own way. I think he actually tried to build on what made Crowley irked is that Russell tried to build, build onto the book of the law with his own book of the law. And Crowley oh. would have nothing. Yeah. So that kind of got him excommunicated. Um, yeah. <laughs> Brandon, do you mind taking a few questions? We're about 40 minutes. Somebody's asked one. Uh, how much did this, how much did Robinson charge and how much did he make? So initially, again, it was a dollar per lesson. And so 20 bucks would get you the full set of, of 
lessons. And then he sold other things, like he created the Psycheana Brotherhood, which you could get into for, I think, $2.50. And then he started creating his own like doctoral degrees, which would cost, oh, I can't remember, maybe $20. And it took a while to, you know, a series of lessons to build up to the degree that he could confer upon you. Um, there were other clubs that you, you know, Psycheana clubs that you could be part of. Um, there was, he was working on the order of um, eternal life and that was maybe $5 to join. And he was also trying to sell his books. So his books would go for about two bucks, two fifty a pop. It doesn't sound like much now, but you know, when you, uh, when you have, you know, reach into about, 67 countries around the world and they're all sending in their dollars and their $2 here and there it added up. And, you know, he made a good deal of money. He had a very, you know, it was, um, he had a very nice home. It wasn't extravagant, um, but it was very nice. It was very comfortable. He had a pipe organ installed in it. Like I said, he drove a Duesenberg as well as a Auburn and a supercharge. He had all these fancy cars, but he had a lot of legal issues that dogged him throughout his life. He was always outrunning the Securities Exchange Commission or, you know, the postal inspector for mail fraud or, you know, a number of, you know, the Better Business Bureau and his uh, and, and the immigration services were after him for passport fraud for saying he was from New York when he was from England. Um, and that really chewed up his revenue. So. You know, he did want to go on to create a brick and mortar temple in Hollywood, but it never came to pass because his money was going straight to his lawyers. So that's how that's how he got his money. That's how much he charged. That's roughly, you know, some of the internal documents said they make about thirty two thousand dollars within a quarter, three month period or so. So he was bringing in a lot of cash, but he also spent it pretty quickly on on. Uh, infrastructure, uh, payroll, and legal fees. Gotcha. And did they have any rituals in this religion? Did you know of anything like internal things they had to do or anything like the that? Only, yeah, good question. The only thing that really they had is he had this thing called, you know, look for the, the white spot or the bright spot. And it was kind of a, a relaxation technique where you close your eyes and you look for kind of like a bright, you know, white light or a veil through your eyelids and you focus on that and you say, I believe in the power of the living God. And you just kind of say that over and over again for a while. That was one that they did in the height of World War II. Uh, Frank always trying to hook his religion up to the contemporary news situation, what was going on in the world. He did a psyche and a blitzkrieg against Hitler, um, you know, where he'd have his students uh, you know, get together or, or they would have to get in a quiet spot in their house at 6 p.m., I think, and and repeat like 30 times, I believe the power of the living God will bring Hitler to a speedy end or something like that. So that was one. But outside of those kind of affirmation exercises, there wasn't really anything ritualistic. And then one more question. Is any famous people involved in this? Yeah, so Tommy Burns, who was the former uh, world uh, heavyweight champion, 
uh, boxer uh, from Canada, was an ardent member of Psychiana. Uh, he had Psychiana on his on his business card, and corresponded with Frank quite a bit. Um, Tommy Burns was known for quote crossing the color line back in the day when only white fighters would fight white fighters and uh, colored fighters. They were called would fight uh, others uh, colored fighters. And Tommy Burns crossed the color line, took a lot of heat for it. Um, and he was, he was an ardent member. Uh, there was, um, um, I'm trying to remember there was a singer by the last name of Burr. Um, and I'm forgetting his first name. Uh, he wrote a song that was in Boardwalk Empire called Buddy, I think. Um, oh, he, he was a member. Uh, Red Skelton um, was reported to have been a member. Uh, there's a picture of Red Skelton with uh, Frank Robinson, but I couldn't find any documentation, a letter or anything like that from, from Red Skelton to verify that. So Robinson could very easily just had a photo taken with him and then told his students that Red Skelton was a member I could very easily seeing that happen. Um, yeah, so there were some notable people. Those were probably the most notable people. Notice most well-known. We're at about 45 minutes, Brandon. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap up the interview? Um, no, I don't – I mean, I don't think so. I think that uh, it's easy to see this as a, an oddity that occurred in the Great Depression throughout World War II, and it's – hermetically sealed to that time and place. But, you know, I think that there's a lot of things going on today where you, you sit, you know, you sit back and you say, how would anybody believe X or Y or Z? And um, that's still going on today, you know, and Frank Robinson was just an early iteration of, you know, of that. And so I think it behooves us to kind of break down the context of what's going on and see why people believe what they believe. That was always, I'm not a religious man as I write in the book. So I'm always fascinated by, by the power of belief um, in, in so far as, you know, either organized religion or something like this. So this that guy would be can fit. Yeah. I would say this guy fits into the QAnon phenomenon where they're reading missives. They're totally believing fits yeah. into UFO culture a yeah. lot of internet subgroups. I mean, this is a very important kind of precedent for the present, in my opinion. And that's yeah, what I, I was thinking when I was reading through. Yeah, I thought of QAnon exactly. Um, like the, the occultism, the kind of overlapping things, kind of self-helpish too. So yeah, really absolutely. well done. And it's a very well researched. You have a lot of pictures and very, very well, well written. It's one of those books that you come across that's artfully done. Like some are just put together, but this one... I think is really exceptional. So congrats to you. Where's the best place to get Psyche Animan? You know, I think probably the best place uh, is probably Amazon. Um, that's, you know, that's probably the easiest place to go. Or at WSU, uh, Washington State University Press, you can Google that and you can order it straight from them. Um, and you're, if people want to reach out to you, it's your website, brandontran.com, correct? That's right. Yep. And I'll put that in the show notes. So if anybody wants to reach out more, but uh, thanks so much for your time. Re really well done. Really interesting book. Very timely. I think it fits into a lot of things that are happening today. Very good piece of Americana too. That's a kind yeah. of another way I would describe it. So again, the author's name is Brandon R. Schrand. Full website is Brandon 
S-C-H-R-A-N-D.com, title of the book, Psyche and a Man, a Mail Order Prophet, His Followers, and the Power of Belief in Hard Times. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. All right, stay there. Stay there. Stay there.